Hey everyone, welcome back to We've Got Next Podcast. As always, it's me, Julian. So this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of having a specific topic that I talk about, and then we have a guest come on and talk about, we're just going to do the guest portion. This is because I got future state senator Jabari Brisport to come on the podcast, and I thought that since he is so cool and so interesting, it would be a better use of time to just talk to him about a variety of of issues, including himself, his entrance into politics, and the fact that he is a democratic socialist. So Jabari Brisport is a 32-year-old democratic socialist. He went to Yale's drama school, and he was a public school math teacher for two years. He just recently won the primary in New York's 25th state senate district, which represents parts of Fort Greene, Burham Hill, Red Hook, Bed-Stuy, Sunset Park, Gowanus, and Parslope. He beat the he beat Tremaine Wright, who was endorsed by most of the party establishment and also endorsed by the previous holder of the seat. He was endorsed by prominent democratic socialists such as Bernie Sanders, AOC. He was also endorsed by the Sunrise Movement. He's a really cool, interesting person. And I'm so happy that we were able to have him on. So, without further ado, future state senator Jabari Brisport, thanks for coming on. Um, so how did you, like, get into politics and, like, what made you decide to run? Because you're still so young. Like, why did you think that, like, that's something that you could do? Well, thanks for calling me young. My, <laughs> my students definitely don't think that. Um, I've definitely been okay boomered a few times. But I am, I am still, you know, my, my early 30s. I, <laughs> I swear I'm a millennial, um, regardless of what my students say. But, you know, I was really, um, well, I got into politics to begin with. That was, like, way back when I was in, that was when I was in college. And, and you know, I just felt, like, really threatened. My first things fighting for were the fight for same-sex marriage around, what was that, 13 years ago. That was when I got started. And, you know, I was an openly gay guy. I just felt like, you know, my, my I was being threatened as a person and not, you know, treated as a second-class citizen. So I got started in that. And then um, organized around that, you know, in New York, the big battles were in 2009, 2011. That's when the state Senate, uh, they voted yes. Uh, so they voted no against same-sex marriage in 2009, but then yes in 2011. So I'm, I'm actually kind of honored to be like, you know, a gay man entering the state legislature after that being my first battle with them yeah. over, over um, same-sex marriage. But, you know, after that, I got really plugged into the Black Lives Matter movement in the early 2010s. And then in 2016, when Bernie Sanders ran, to begin with, that's when I first started getting interested in like electoral politics and candidates instead of just issues. And, and Bernie was really the first person that made me realize I would have to, you know, go out and protest less if I could, you know, just elect somebody that agreed with me on most things to begin with. And that was really exciting. Um, and I ended up running for office in 2017 because I was really frustrated with what was going on in my community, um, especially around rezonings and gentrification. I lost that race for city council, but ran again for state senate, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, why why is state politics important? Like, you talked about the gay marriage issue. Why should people care about state politics and city politics? Like, why does that matter? Like, why shouldn't we just talk about, like, who's the president? That's a great question, um, because, you know, so much is controlled at the local level, especially at the state level. A really good example would be right now with coronavirus. I mean, we've seen there has been a state-by-state response. This has largely been led by, you know, how your governor and state legislature, wherever you live, have interacted with the virus. And some of us are really suffering from that, and some of us are not suffering as much from that because of how individual states respond. Um, So that's one issue. You know, a lot of things are done at the state level, not just um, a healthcare, you know, response like that, but also, like, transportation, um, education, housing, um, 
energy systems, like a lot is run at the state level. And then also at the city level, you know, a lot of people are talking about, you know, defunding the police. That's a city issue or a town issue, like wherever you live, like that's your local city council, your board of aldermen, your local, um, you know, whatever, whoever runs your city, your town, that's, a, you know, that's their issue. So, you know, there are some really salient and important changes you can make right in your own backyard that um, are not even, you know, something you need to reach out to your congressperson or president for. It's right there, your, your local elected officials. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's really easy to ignore those local races, even though they probably matter more. So now I want to talk about your identity a little bit. I read that you're the first openly gay black member of the state legislature. Is that true? Yeah. And you're that's also, does that, like, what does that mean to you? You know, it means, um, thank you for asking. I mean, it means like uh, there are intersections that I have an opportunity to have lived through that, um, you know, not everyone can live through. So, you know, I'm able to see like, for example, the intersection of what's going on right now with COVID with like queer people of color being hit really hard by it because, you know, queer people of color, especially just literally like gay black men, high incident rates of being HIV positive, having being immunocompromised um, or being out of work or even if they have work, having very poor protection. So um, people within this community having a real cocktail of um, terrible issues that make them more susceptible to COVID-19 or, or susceptible to like the worst ravages of it. So that's important, but also seeing how like, you know, there are so many issues which wouldn't typically be called queer issues that truthfully are queer issues. Like when you talk about housing rights or like a just education system or healthcare for all, like those are very clearly queer issues because um, we are marginalized in those ways. And uh, my lived experience allows me to see how that's all connected. Yeah, I noticed that you talk about how race is like a backdrop to everything. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about how sexual orientation is also a part of that and that relates to other issues. Do you see that like everywhere? And do you think that people who don't share those identifiers just don't see that because they're not looking for it? You know, I think they might see it um, if they don't share these identifiers, but like not at, not through the same lens or they may just not notice it. I mean, they, they're definitely, I would say, probably not looking for it as much, just like, like you said. Um, you know, yeah, I feel like a lot of people wouldn't think of housing as a queer issue, but like, you know, we have so many uh, queer youth that are homeless so you know these these intersections do exist um i definitely see them more than other yeah um so you're a democratic socialist um why so why are you a democratic socialist and what does that mean to you uh i am a democratic socialist because i believe in putting people over profits i believe that things that affect everyone are best run when there's strong democratic participation in them. So whether that is our housing, our education system, our energy systems, our healthcare systems, I believe when those are best run by um, with mass democratic input from as many people as possible, not run for profit, but run to meet people's human needs. And ultimately, I believe we're at a place where we can orient our, enti our entire society around people's needs and no longer, you know, the maximum pursuit of profit above all else. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is something that a lot of people would agree with, but the popularity of democratic socialism is still pretty low. Why do you think that is? You know, a lot of people um, still have just the red baiting on um, things that are left over from the Cold War, where, you know, they think, they hear the word socialism, they think automatically like, you know, repression from the, the Soviet Union, um, blogs, uh, red lines, and, well, one, it's not that, but two, um, you know, I need them to look around and see how capitalism is doing that to us right now, how we literally have soup kitchens right now and then people 
millions that are losing their health insurance are about to be evicted from their homes. We have an extremely racist, authoritarian police and criminal legal system. Like that's all right here in our own backyards, and that's all capitalism, you know. And it's fundamentally a racist institution that we need, and we need to like, you know, abolish and replace with something that brings in as much community input from as many people, especially marginalized groups, as possible. So can you talk a little bit about how, like you just said that capitalism is fundamentally racist. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's something that gives a lot of people pause. Yeah. Um, So I actually realized I was a socialist um, through my own exploration of race. You know, I was thinking one day that slavery was literally capitalism. Like it was black people brought over as objects for sale, put on markets. Um, You could use a black person as collateral at a bank. If you wanted to take out a loan, um, it was, it was, you know, we were literally brought here as capital. And then how that really fed into some of the worst atrocities against black people post-slavery, like, you know, Jim Crow, sharecropping, redlining, for-profit policings, uh, excuse me, for-profit prisons, for-profit policing, all that, fueling it. And also just the, the incredible disparities we all see now are all exacerbated by capitalism, whether that's the wealth gap, whether that's the healthcare gap, whether that's the education, um, you know, attainment gap in, in our communities, like it's all driven by like the fact that we have put we have put profit as um, an end goal in so many of these industries that shouldn't have them, and how that exacerbates racism. Um, so, in, in, you know, my, in my opinion, you know, black people were brought here as capital, and, and therefore no black person should support capitalism. Yeah, I mean, and that's I think that's like the specific policies that go along with that are pretty popular. Like even among kids who are seen as more liberal than older generations okay boomer um like we're like even kids most kids still don't support socialism like what do you think it's going to take to get people to line up their policy beliefs with like their like with like capitalism versus socialism you know we need to see more democratic socialists in office just showing that it works like a lot of people they're just like you know i won't believe it until i see it so like what we need is more people. Well, there's that. Well, there's a few things. There's one, we need more people just like enacting the laws and showing that they're, they're good, actually. Like, people like their Social Security. They like their Medicare. They like their, they like, you know, big universal programs. Um, they just get worried about the word socialism. So we need more people to actually in office to fight for those um, and enact those policies, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, all of that. But then also there's a second thing about like, I want to say, you know, it's funny as a, as a gay man, just saying like to come out as a socialist. Because, um, you know, this, this is a thing in like queer acting, you say like when you come out of the closet, it's not just for you personally, but it's to make it easier for other people to come out of the closet as well. And there's a thing about that with socialism too. Like I was very clear when I was, I wrote my problems, like I'm a socialist, I'm a socialist, I'm a socialist. It's because in doing so, I make it easier for other people to share that they're one as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so now I sort of want to shift to some of your specific policies that you support. So the first one is the New York Health Act. So what is the New York Health Act? I think the abbreviation is NYHA. So what is it and why is it necessary? Thanks. Uh, New York Health Act is, get right, you're right, it's uh, NYHA. That is um, a state bill in New York which would basically guarantee um, single-payer health care to every single New Yorker. Um, it's basically Medicare for all, but at the state level. And it's super important, one, because one is the pandemic, everyone should have health care. But two, even if it wasn't a pandemic, everyone should have health care and should be able to see a doctor. And three, um, we, New York can be a beacon for this. Um, it's actually how it happened in Canada was they didn't start off with everyone having um, a single-payer health insurance. Like It started off in one province, and then once people saw that it worked because single-payer health care works, 
I want to say so. I worked in one province. They, they expanded it nationwide. And I'm hoping that's what we could do in America. But, you know, if New York can just you know, be the leader on this, if we can pass it here, show the works, and then pass it everywhere. And then, you know, we end up the atrocity of being the, the last developed country on the planet that still doesn't have um, guaranteed health care for every citizen. Yeah, I think a lot of people. So here's my question. Why do you think that a single payer system is the best way to shift to as opposed to just a robust public option that so that everybody can have health care, but not everyone has to leave their private insurer? It's, you know, it's it's the easiest um, method. You want to cut out the middleman. You want to cut out, you know, you want to make the. You know, in a single payer health and in, uh, health insurance system, like the government is the on the bulk purchaser. It's the last person to it's an entity to negotiate pri- um, prices, and you want to make it as powerful as possible for the government to negotiate these prices, keep them low um, for everyone, and just and decrease as much inefficiency as that comes from middlemen of like you know insurance agents and this and that. So it's the best um, option. It's also the simplest for people too, to not to navigate bouncing around between public option. And private options, or having their or having their job try and coerce them into having a one option over another. Um, it's the simplest, most effective way. Huh? Yeah, interesting. I never thought about like the like what it would be like to have both a public and private option that people are switching between. Um, so you mentioned the Green New Deal earlier, and I saw that that's part of your platform. What What is the Green New Deal? Why is it important? Yeah, um, Green New Deal is big um, progressive um, democratic socialist dream of deep investment in um, our community in the same way the New Deal was, but adding on a, um, a layer of environmental equity and justice, you know, saying we're going to deeply invest in 100% clean, renewable energy on the fastest time scale possible, 2030, um, and also ensuring that in the process of doing it, we're creating good union jobs, to put more money into people's pockets. And also having like environmental, sorry, um, racial equity there where we're making sure that we are prioritizing communities that have been the hardest because it's like in New York, for example, you know, whenever we have a hurt and it's, it's the coastal communities like those in Red Hook and the Far Rockaway, which are predominantly Latinx or, or black that are getting hit the hardest. It's not the wealthy white, you know, communities in New York. And that's just like a microcosm of what happens around this country and around the world. It's, it's communities of color that are harmed the worst by climate change. So it's deep investment in those, but also in housing, right into our public housing system and also retrofitting buildings so they're more energy efficient. And, you know, it's just deep, deep, and, you know, you know, a jobs guarantee. It's it's deep, deep investment um, in the best way possible in the green future, you know, protecting a genera- generations for years to come. Yeah, so that's like, I think you, like, you refer to like it as like the pr- big, the, the big progressive hope, the Green New Deal, because it's sort of all encompassing. Like, how does it, plan to like meet the needs like i know one of the big goals is to switch to all renewable and clean energy by 2030 like how is that going to be done because that seems like such a big task yeah um big thing big socialist thing is we got to tax the rich much much higher um much more progressive taxation like they, they cannot be hoarding wealth while the rest of the world is on fire um there's a much better use of that money and that's you know that's putting it into um paying and investing in um, renewable energy infrastructure. So that's wind, that's solar, that's hydrothermal, so that's hydroelectric, it's geothermal. Um, and in New York specifically, I mean, there's a great phrase that, you know, people call Long Island, they call it, you know, it could be the Saudi Arabia of wind energy. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, yeah. <laughs> they, wave all their, 
human rights atrocities um, and then the, the big oil producers. But imagine being like a, you know, a massive producer of, of wind energy. You have all that offshore energy and it's, you know, it's about taxing so we can tax the rich so we can pay for that. And also convincing like very wealthy homeowners that it's actually a beautiful thing. Because that's, there's always pushback on those coastal communities. They're like, I don't want to lose my, my beautiful visions of the, <laughs> the, um, the ocean. Um, and I, I can't think of anything more beautiful than like clean renewable energy. Like, I, I, would, I would love, if I live by the sea, I'd love to have like the I'm not out on the, on the coast um, generating clean energy for my kids and, and for everyone's kids. Um, so there's that. So there's taxing the rich, but there's also like ensuring that there's like um, strong input from communities about the best way to do it. So like, you know, you got, you got to reach out to local communities about the best way to input like green space, for example, if they want to fight against storm runner, storm water um, runoff um, in their area, or like looking into unions, for example, like, you know, speaking with the bricklayers union, you might learn that you know, brick is a great insulator, um, you know, and, you know, trying to make a, a, a building more um, energy efficient, um, you know, for, for heat or for cold. And, um, yeah, no, the jobs guarantee is truly a thing because, you know, there's definitely work to be done. Like, you know, we talk about unemployment. That's that's an inefficiency of capitalism, right? There's things that are not profitable, but it can be done. Um, but there's definitely work that needs to be done, especially on building resiliency, investing, in our infrastructure and then even like gross things like investing in like sewage infrastructure like you know we're constantly building new density adding more homes but then like you know not always building enough pipes um to deal with all the waste that, that comes in so like dealing with the overflow and all and like sewage treatment like that's all part of um, retrofitting our um our societies to be more green and more energy resilient yeah i love how you refer to that as like the gross thing <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah so you already talked about it like why isn't the Green New Deal, why isn't it like just climate? Like why is it about a federal jobs guarantee and also housing? Like why is it all encompassing as opposed to like doing one thing at a time? You know, these these topics are all um, deeply connected. I mean, when we're talking about investments, uh, we have to talk about the things that are truthfully like, like making our society un, un, um, unhealthy. I mean, that is the incredible fossil fuels coming from uh, inefficient housing, from poorly um, designed urban design is centered around cars and fossil fuels, it's even around, you know, in the way we industrial animal agriculture and factory farms, like it's all of that. They're deeply connected. And we also, the fact that we do have a, a, a dirt, you know, we do have a, a, unemployment in this country and people that um, want to work are unable to find jobs. And that's a very clear solution to marry those two things and put people to work, making our society healthier. Like, and these are the ways we're going to do it. We're going to, you know, guarantee housing and make sure it's energy efficient housing. Um, we're going to retrofit homes so that they're energy efficient. We're going to make communities more resilient. We're going to orient our transit more around mass transit and clean transit um, and bikes. Um, and we are going to, uh, you know, also include you know, Medicare for all because, you know, when people are um, they're healthier, it's a healthier society. And like, you know, that is health is, you know, connected to this. I mean, when you have all these cars on the road, I mean, that's, you know, especially in like urban or like, you know, or places with a deep urban density and not, not too many green spaces, you get things like increased asthma, uh, preconditions that, you know, you know, again, would exacerbate uh, COVID. But, you know, these are these things are all, you know, deeply inter interconnected and like addressing them with the Green New Deal is a great way to say, if we're going to, if we're going to do deep investment in our society, let's do it the right way. Why do you think that the Green New Deal is seen as something that's so far out and so radical and is not something that people see as realistically could happening? I think it's seen that way because the world and like political viewpoint that we live in right now has been crapped over the past um, decades, honestly. 
you know, the United States is moving steadily right, and people have been saying, no, it's about the markets. The markets will save us. Let's just give more. Let's give more money to the quote-unquote job producers, the CEOs, and everything. They will create jobs. The market will solve it. The market will fix it. And this notion of like deep government investment to trillions of dollars, like that at that level, has really not been seen in like nearly a hundred years. So you know, um, there's a good, there's a big push by conservatives to like forget that the New Deal is one of the most incredible things that could have happened to this country um, in the 20th century. That the Marshall Plan was one of the most incredible, incredible things that could happen to you know Europe. Like you know, these deep investments from the states into um, local communities um, was such an incredible shot in the arm. And they try and hide it because they want it for themselves. I mean, we already see, you know, there's tons of kickbacks um, for the rich. You know, five minutes into COVID, there was the trillion dollars for Wall Street. Like, where'd that money come from? I think the fear is that, you know, if we do start to see when deep state and government, uh, deep state um, involvement or deep government involvement um, through funding of these projects works, that, you know, people will start to shift that viewpoint over there and start to like trust less in markets um, as they should and trust less in big business as they should um, in terms of funding things over more publicly. So how did you, how did you learn all about this? So I know that you were, you talked in the beginning about how you were interested in like certain issues and you were an activist and then you decided to run for office after Bernie. But like when you were like a kid, like how did you like become interested in these things and learn about these things? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of it, you know, is reading, but like, you know, as a, as a kid, I really was, I didn't know much about socialism or anything. Like, again, I got into politics through identity-based stuff, but like once I started reading more into it, um, I um, sought out, you know, others with like-minded viewpoints and learned from them. So like I joined the, D- the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. I learned a lot from them and hosting reading groups and everything. And um, had a chance to like read up on Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King actually was a Democratic Socialist and see some of his viewpoints on it and how, you know, economics could be better structured around working people. And, um, you know, I, I am considering myself a lifelong learner. So there's still a lot of stuff that I still need to learn about this. You know, um, there's many different forms of socialism. You know, I, I consider myself non-denominational socialist right now. It's like I just want to make sure everyone has healthcare and housing and education. And I, I want to get rid of um, big business um, and it's, it's corrupting influence on politics. But no, there's many pathways into it. And definitely, you know, Definitely a lot of great uh, publications and like outlets for learning more about it. Yeah. So when you were like, when you were a high schooler, like, did you ever imagine yourself running for state senate? No. Funny enough, I wanted to be an actor when I was in high school. So <laughs> really? Pretty, uh, pretty far from um, from that. But um, even though there is a lot of acting, I guess, in running for office, <laughs> being a politician. Um, but no, no. So yeah, I, w- I would say like nobody needs, needs to limit themselves. You know, I, w- I would say like, you know, don't even worry about like making sure you need to have read up on, you know, 50 political books by the time you graduate high school and whatever. Like everyone finds their path into politics because politics is every single part of our, it, inf- it, it touches every single part of our lives. So, you know, definitely don't shortchange yourself or like second guess yourself. Like if you want to be involved, just get, you know, you can get involved. And like, that's how politics should be. It should be open to every single person. Yeah. Um. So I, you're a math teacher, right? Uh, yes. What grades? I uh, teach sixth and seventh grade math. So, how, like, do you think that that's prepared you for state senate, or made you want to run for state senate more? Yeah, I love that you asked that because a lot of people don't think it would. But I like I teach in a public school, and seeing how students suffer when we do not fund our public schools or the social safety net at large is one of the most upsetting and infuriating things. Um, 
And I can, you know, you can see when, you know, your students can't get textbooks anymore, you know, cops are flying around in helicopters and have like paramilitary gear. You can see how like our government could be allocating funds in a much better way. But also like, you know, I, if I have, you know, students that are housing insecure, like one in 10 students is homeless or housing insecure. That's a really frustrating and, and horrifying um, statistic, you know, and you can see them in the classroom and students, you know, one, they just have to leave the school because their parents have to have to move. They got evicted or two, they, they just cannot stay awake because they're, they don't have a home of their own. They're sleeping at this person's place one night, this person's place the other night. It's really frustrating. Um, I, I had one kid, you know, tell me he's worried about when school starts again, like a cop stopping him on the subway and accusing him of having a gun and the kid's 11 years old. Um, but, it, you know, it makes sense for him to be afraid of that because, you know, Timmy Rice was 12 when he was killed. Like, you know, there there are so many connections between, like, being a public school teacher and seeing how society is misstructured across many different fields because it affects it affects our students uh, in all their lives. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just, like, as you're saying that, you remind me so much of Jamal Bowman. <laughs> oh, great. Jamal Bowman is he's a goat. <laughs> he's, he's really, he's, I'm so excited about him. <laughs> um. So, as you're, like, getting into state senate, like, what are you thinking about it? Because I know that there is, like, a lot of, like, money in state politics, too. Are you, like, worried about that and its influence? And, like, what are your thoughts on, like, you're going into the state government? That's a great question because, like, there is a lot, a big problem with money in, in Albany, in New York, specifically real estate money. That's, like, you know, people joke about real estate in New York being the equivalent of oil in Texas. Like, you know... Money, real estate money drives New York politics. And like, I know I vouched to not take any real estate money in my campaign. I know some others did, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't. They're like, you know, give me all the more money, the better, right? <laughs> and it is like, it is a, a, a tussle because we want to make sure that housing policy is not driven by people with a profit incentive. Like I cannot be, I cannot stress that enough. Like housing should not be driven by people who want to make money off of it um, because that's the, the where we've been going. For, for decades, and we've seen, you know, unaffordable housing being built everywhere, luxury towers, luxury condos, which people don't even live in because nobody can afford them. Um, and it's an absolute travesty because we have homeless people on the street while there's just luxury hand, condos sitting empty. Like, it was a total, you know, why are we as a society investing money in something that people don't want or, do, or cannot live in? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I know I've rejected, you know, money from real estate um developers, real estate in general, but also fossil fuel companies, charter schools. I want to make sure I'm accountable to everyday people. So I'm not worried um, I'm about my, my own candidacy um, and that of others, you know, democratic, socialist, and progressives. But, you know, it is going to be a battle with people that don't see money as an influence um, on politics and, and are happily take that money. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. What's like the first bill you're going to introduce when you get to the state Senate? There's some things I'm going to be fighting for that have already been introduced. One Biggest one probably is good, something called good cause eviction, um, which drastically reduces the, the reasons you can evict somebody because um, it truthfully is like evictions are a tool of gentrification. In my opinion, like you can see where the where the majority of evictions are happening, where the hotspots are, and it's always in communities of color, low income communities of color. So like why there, why then, and we, everyone knows why. Um, but in addition to that, I do want to introduce a moratorium on charter schools. I do think that their construction um, and that, you know, in general, they compete with funding and resources for actually public schools, um, which is a shame. And I'm going to work with other senators to uh, speed up our divestment of the state pension fund from fossil fuels. That's also part of it. It's like you're going to stop investing in fossil fuels. No money into fossil fuels. No more help. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, so I have my last question, probably, maybe I'll think of another one, is kind of, I might not even include it in the podcast, but I'm just curious. 
because um, it's something that I've done a little bit of work with. So are you aware of like the situation with like the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox yeshivas and like the quality of education? Um, no, tell me more. Oh, okay. So um, I, I don't go to one, obviously, but there are these like ultra-Orthodox yeshivas in communities like Crown Heights, Williamsburg, and like a lot of these schools that are like run, they're like super religious and like high school boys specifically are getting almost no education, almost no secular education. And it's been an issue in the state government right now. There are like regulations or guidelines being talked about. And like, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Felder Amendment, which happened a few budgets ago, which like at the last minute, like Simha Felder, who I think is a assemblyman or congress or senator or used to be in the state legislature. Oh, he's a senator and he's, he's the worst. Um, yeah. So, he, yeah, so he introduced an amendment at like, the last minute that, like, allowed for, like, allowed, for, like, for religious schools to not have to be substantially equivalent to, like, public schools. So, anyway, there's, like, an issue and I was wondering yeah, what your thoughts good. on that were. No, I mean, that's just really unfortunate because we want to make sure, I mean, the purpose of school is to have well-rounded individuals that can participate in society in like a well-rounded way. Like you need people to be educated on the basis of history and, and civics and math. So they want to participate in our society in, an, in, a, in, a, in a well way and then, you know, and, and be educated about that way. So that, that's really unfortunate. I'd actually know it was going to that extent. I, I had heard stuff about um, those institutions and vaccines, which um, yeah. was, was troubling to me, but I did not know about the, um, the curriculum stuff. So no, that, yeah, I don't, I don't that amendment's not good. I mean, I, there's a, there's a bare minimum that people should graduate knowing. Um, in my, not just my opinion. I think most people's opinion is a bare minimum. People should graduate knowing. And um, yeah, thank you for the, bringing that to my attention. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look more into that and see what I can do. Yeah, great. Um, okay, so last thing. Um, what's like the most important things thing for like kids, high schoolers, middle schoolers, even college students to know about politics, know about the world as they're like becoming adults? Oh, wow. The most important thing is, um, I would say, if you're comfortable with it, um, try to do something in the real world that is not all online. Um, just because we can often get into bubbles of experience uh, or bubbles of narratives that can happen online that are not necessarily reflective of what's actually on the ground. And, like, you know, bubbles exist in the real world, too. I'm not even saying, like, that. Like, there's bubble around. But, like, speak out things that are outside, like, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, whatever like, app, app or application you're using, um, just to see more about what's going on in the real world. And also just, um, in addition to that, I would say, if you can get them involved in a campaign, do it. And it doesn't need to be, like, a, a, a candidate campaign it could be like an issue-based campaign too but see if there's something you want to plug into and augment that's a great that's honestly a great way to learn a lot of politics to be involved in a campaign yeah all right thank you so much for joining that was awesome yeah, Julie, amazing, amazing interview um let me know when this is uh live i guess yeah let me in. appreciate you all thanks right. for doing this yeah of course thank you so much for coming yeah bye see ya well that's our show for today Thank you to Jabari Brisport for coming on. You can go to jabariforstatesenate.com if you want to learn more about him. If you enjoyed this podcast, tune in next week, next Wednesday, for a new episode. Go follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Apple Podcasts, I think that's a thing, and follow us on Instagram at We've Got Next Pod. Thanks for listening.